All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And as you turn there, I'm going to be looking at other passages this morning too, but Hebrews chapter 13. And as you turn there, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we come before you and break open the bread of life, Lord, teach us to obey your word. Teach us to love it. And Lord, I pray that in our life we would learn to love you. So when we get tempted to sin, that our love, our growing love for you would be more powerful than the temptation to walk away and sin against you. Enable us, Lord, to live each day in the Spirit and walk by the Spirit so we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And help us, Lord, by these scriptures to reorganize our thoughts in our life, to honor the things that you honor, and to despise the things you despise. So, Lord, we may give the glory to your name. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13, looking at the imperatives of the Christian race, and of course, specifically, the imperatives in our practicing, the practicing of our faith in our, in our relationships, uh, and of course, in those relationships that we may offer up to God's sacrifices, because that's what they become. They become our sacrifices to God, uh, and those sacrifices would be well-pleasing in our relationships with other people. So we have already considered some things, number one, in verse number one, that we must cultivate the virtue of constant love, where it says love, uh, let the love of the brethren continue. Secondly, that we must forget and display the virtue of unusual hospitality. Believers ought to be ready to be hospitable at all times, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then number three, that we're to keep in mind, not forget the virtue of simple sympathy in the, for those believers who are in distress because of their faith or even those who have gone to prison or have been put in bondage in some way because of their faith in Christ that we should never forget them. So we should always be mindful of those people around us. And then the fourth thing I considered was that we must keep the marriage institution in high esteem. And that was the fourth one. And that's in verse number 4 of chapter 13. And I'd like you to look there because I want to expand on this one this morning uh, and kind of stick right here and then go off to another passage of Scripture that unfolds some things about uh, this particular point or topic. In verse 4 it says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So this, this very word marriage I mentioned last time is used most often in the context of a wedding celebration or a wedding banquet or, or even the wedding garment. In, in other words, in, in the, the person's mind, especially in that culture and also in the culture of the Word of God, is that it was a special event that people looked forward to and planned for 
especially first in their relationship to God, because then, of course, this special event would be an event that happens between a man and a woman, which includes some kind of public celebration. So the celebration would be uh, that of a couples and then a public gathering of people to celebrate that particular event. So in doing that, there are four things that believers are to, uh, to do to hold marriage in high honor. And I mentioned several of them already. The first one is maintaining the correct mindset concerning marriage. And what is that mindset? Well, in verse number four, it says that the marriage institution is to be held in honor. It's, it's an honorable institution. It is, uh, and that means, another way of saying that, it's valuable, it's precious, it's, it's of great worth, and it is to be respected by all of God's people. So even if the, the world and its system have a skewed and twisted view of marriage, and even for the most part have discarded it, when someone becomes a believer and comes into the church and begins to listen to God's word, they need to now reorganize their thoughts and realize, wait a minute, this institution is really of great worth and it's a precious gift that God himself gives to humanity. And so in the church, we should lift this institution up to a place of honor. And then a second thing is that the marriage bed, the marriage bed would be undefiled. So the mindset would be that the marriage bed would remain pure. And of course, there are different ways uh, people may think about marriage. And I mentioned again last time that mostly in this culture, asceticism had been a problem. And that would was the mindset that considered marriage not really honorable at all. In fact, it was a defiling and a filthy institution because it considered sex to be uh, filthy and not a gift given by God himself. But when you're bringing it to the biblical realm, you have a whole different picture because this is the way God wants us to view it, that there is nothing at all whatsoever dishonorable in marriage or defiling in in marriage especially in relationship to the marriage bed and of course that is always uh, euphemism that refers to that of sexual intercourse uh, in the marriage relationship so what exactly and of course today we have the world has the antinomianistic view of marriage and that's pretty much this that there's no rules that it's free love. You know, we, we're past the sexual revolution now, and we're, we're deep into uh, past that, and people are pretty much discarding marriage, and so there's no rules, there's no ceremonies, there's no commitment. So let's not even get married, let's live together, experiment, uh, and all that kind of stuff, and that's very foreign to anything the Bible teaches and something we need to stay away from. So what exactly are some things the Bible says about marriage? Well, let me just give you a few of those things. It it views marriage, number one, as a divine institution. Uh, Contrary to some contemporary opinion, marriage is not a human institution that evolved over the centuries to meet the needs of society. 
marriage is God's idea from Genesis chapter 2. So marriage in and of itself is a creation ordinance. ordinance. It's not just binding on people who come to know the Lord and are believers. It's binding on every human being who's ever lived because God has organized this institution for humanity in general. And so it's a divine institution. It comes from God, designed by God. Secondly, that marriage is regulated by divine instructions. Uh, Since God made marriage, it stands to reason that it must be regulated by his commands, not ours, not by societies, not by a particular culture, but by himself, because he's the one who is the designer. So in marriage, both the husband and wife stand beneath the authority of the Lord himself, where the psalm says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor will labor in vain. All right? So it is the Lord who is uh, definitely the one who designs this institution and makes its rules and boundaries. And so a, a third thing would be in Scripture that marriage is a covenant, a covenant is an agreement between two parties based on mutual promises and solemnly binding obligations. So God's covenant, if you remember with Abraham that we've been discussing in not only in uh, Hebrews but in our home groups, uh, was a covenant that simply can be summed up in this statement, I will be your God and yet you will be my people. So, So God and people, people and God come together in a covenant And of course, God honors that, and then we are to be faithful to it also. So marriage is a covenant, and it's the most binding and intimate of all human covenants that are on the earth. And the key ingredient to any covenant is that of faithfulness. That of faithfulness in the vows that one person makes to another, a woman makes to a man, a man makes to a woman, Right? And they make it before God because he's the one who designs the institution. And then, like I said, ceremonially, they make it before people. It's a public thing. But also marriage is a whole person commitment that God meant marriage to be the total commitment of a man and a woman to each other. It is not a solo performance, but it is, it is a duet in the marriage Two people give themselves unreservedly to each other. That's why the Lord himself says what God had joined together, let no one separate, let no man separate, or the old King James says, let no one, let no man put asunder, all right? Separate what God has brought together. And so marriage really is till death do us part. It's not a carry over from an old-fashioned, you know, romantic type of thinking, but it is a sober reflection of God's intention regarding marriage. So ultimately, marriage in Scripture, when we get to the book of Ephesians, which I am going to take up after Hebrews, uh, will be that of a divine illustration. Uh, And the illustration of a love relationship that God established with his people so that marriage becomes a object lesson to all who should view it, to all others who see it, 
that there is something of the, the divine and the human relationship reflected when two men, I mean two, excuse me, a man and a woman, not two men. Uh, man, that was a slip. A uh, man and a woman, like one man said, it's, it was uh, God meant it to be Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And, uh, and so, in, in, in a, of course, bring it, being that I, I did say that, uh, marriage is only uh, between a man and a woman. That's how God designed it. Um, it's never in any other context. So, saying all that, um, in our text here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 4, how are we, the church, to keep marriage honorable and well, the first way was to maintain a, a, a next thing in our maintenance of this honoring institution is to have a correct behavior in marriage. And what is that? Well, if you look at verse number four of Hebrews 13, uh, just by way of review, that this is what dishonors or defiles a marriage, and that is that of pornos. Uh, Fornication is the word that we get, and it's translated immorality sometimes, but fornication is more specifically from the word itself, and that's one who practices sexual immorality or fornication. That is defiling behavior that dishonors a marriage in advance uh, of the marriage celebration. And so that is something that the Bible says, listen, we have to honor marriage before we get married. If we ever get married, we have to honor marriage because that's what God wants us to do. And then second word is uh, moikos, which is adultery or adulterer. That is a defiling behavior that dishonors marriage after marriage has been entered into, after the covenant has been made, after the celebration, after it has been done before God and people, someone now becomes unfaithful. Right, in breaking that covenant by sexual immorality or adultery. And so those two words are specifically used in Scripture to talk about before and after. So you can't make a mistake at all. So these terms indicate that those who are unfaithful to their marriage vows are people who dishonor the institution. And so the two adjectives cover all who recklessly engage in forbidden, the forbidden practice against the one who sets the boundaries and the rules for such relationships, and that's God himself. So this means that it is the responsibility of all of Christ's church to view marriage as honorable and undefiled, and we're to actually practice that, and we should never disgrace this institution by sexual unfaithfulness. And that really takes all of us watching out for each other, praying for each other, communicating God's standards to each other just in case someone forgot or lay them aside for a while. All right, so what would happen if in this next year, if God's unconditional love became the foundation of all of our marriages? I think that uh, if we prayed, Lord, let Lord love him or her through me. Lord, take hold of me and love like I can't love and I don't understand how to love. Love, let me love my spouse like that. Well, that would make uh, God more honoring. That would make him more loving to the other person. 
and myself also and it would also you and it would also make us more faithful because we would be considering uh, our relationship to our spouse from God's perspective and the way God is faithful to us the way he displays love to us and so we ought to be doing that and then of course in verse number four maintaining a correct view of God that those people who uh, who dishonor marriage that's fornicators and adulterers it says very clearly in, in verse number four God will judge so illicit sexual sins defile the marriage bed and profanes what God has made holy so illicit sexual sins are to be kept away from and how does that happen a healthy fear of God all right like Joseph Lord how can I when Potiphar's wife wanted to have a sexual relationship with him he he said how can I commit this great sin and sin against God see that's what's going to keep us from sin our love for God our relationship with the Lord that that is the key to what the scriptures say about uh, this relationship, this powerful urge that the Lord has given us that anyone who defiles marriage through any illicit sexual encounter will face the certainty of divine judgment. It's God's institution. God makes the rules. If we dishonor those rules, then we are held responsible before God. Matter of fact, one commentator said that some theologians point out in this passage that it's talking about the final judgment that determines human destiny in this passage. That this is, if, if you get away with things on this side, you will not get away with it ultimately before the judge of all the universe. And he will hold you responsible to how you lived your life. And so we are to have a correct view of God, which gives us the fear of God, which helps us to say no to sin and, and keep our boundaries and keep our view of the institution in perspective. And then there is a, a, a last thing uh, that we are to maintain the correct conduct that is pleasing to the Lord. And of course, to look at this one, I want you to turn uh, to Thessalonians, the book of Thessalonians. And that's, if you uh, take your Bible and go forward uh, with it, you'll come to the book of Thessalonians chapter 4. And in this book, we see that the Apostle Paul understood the allure of sexual sin so that his epistle to these formerly idolatrous Thessalonians uh, who didn't really know about the marriage institution in, from the perspective God had designed it, and so therefore he gives them uh, instruction on how to live their life. And so that instruction was helpful for them and it's helpful for us because the word of God is something that we ought to learn regularly in fact the Thessalonians lived in a sexually intoxicated culture from its religious system all the way down to the lowest rung in society it was blatantly sexual all right we are living in the same kind of culture it's everywhere it's more accessible sexual things are more accessible today than at any time in human history people can access things privately and nobody knows about it 
But I tell you what, God knows about it, and that's how you have to think, right? That what you feed your mind, what you allow to come into your soul, becomes very important. In fact, if you look up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, he kind of sets the foundation for what he's going to say in chapter 4. And Paul says this, so that he may, this is verse 13 of chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable or unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. So what the Lord is saying there through the Apostle Paul is, listen, God is going to establish you unblameable in holiness, and it's going to be before God. So this all happens before the eyes of God. And so what is, what is it for us that Scripture gets down to the very specifics of what it means for the Christian to live at the highest standard of living, and that's the standard of holiness, to be set apart in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, to God himself, knowing that at every second of every day, God sees everything that's going on in your life, that there is nowhere to run. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. You cannot hide from God at all whatsoever. And you say, well, isn't that kind of a bad way to think? No, it's a very good way to think. It's a healthy way to think. It's a holy way to think. And so with that in mind, let's look at our text. All right. Verse number four of chapter, uh, chapter four, uh, verse number seven. The first thing I want to let you know is, well, let's look at verse number um, one and first of all of First Thessalonians four it says finally brethren we request and exhort you in the Lord that as you receive from us instruction as as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk that you excel still more verse two for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at verse number three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And what is that? That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. So if you want to know what the will of God is very clearly, here it is right here, that you would abstain from that. And so this is what we're called to. This is a picture of holiness, that we're called to abstain from sexual Immorality. So the first thing, it is God's will for you as a believer to be sexually pure. Now, look down at verse 7 of chapter 4. It says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Now let me just look at that for a minute. What is sexual purity? God's design is that man and woman would exercise their sexuality and experience of sexual pleasure in only one context, and that context is the marriage relationship, period. All right? So that would be the purity he is talking about there before and after, and any sexual impurity dishonors our marriage and defiles our marriage bed. I think that point has been made. The definition of sexual purity 
is to receive sexual pleasure and satisfaction only from your spouse and to give sexual pleasure and satisfaction only to your spouse. And for singles, those not married yet, this means abstaining entirely from sexual pleasure and satisfaction as long as God keeps you single. In fact, you ought to be pursuing, while you're single, the greatest pleasure and satisfaction you can. And what is that? That is knowing God. That is knowing God. Because it is knowing Him that will keep us pure. So the definition really comes purely out of what wisdom literature said in Proverbs chapter 5, where the Bible teaches us that, in this sense, let her, that means your wife or your husband, but in this case, the wife, let the, wife, the wife's breast satisfy you at all times, being exhilarated always with your love. Now, now notice something about the Bible. The Bible is not, speaks very outwardly about sexual relationship because it is God's institution, it's God's creation. It doesn't speak at all in any, in any way, in a way that's trying to hide something or, or cover something. It's, it's out there, all right? And so in a verse like this, it's out there, but the point of, of some of the words in the verse is that, listen, being exhilarated with the love of your wife or, and the husband, vice versa, all right, means that of satisfaction. It means that of pleasure, that God designed the marriage institution for pleasure, for fulfilling pleasure, for fulfilling satisfaction, for satisfying the sexual drive. So what is sexual impurity then? Well, to be sexually impure is to receive sexual pleasure and satisfaction from any source other than your spouse and to give sexual pleasure and satisfaction to any other other than your spouse. So in Hebrew, uh, in Proverbs 5 again, it says, Why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? In other, in other words, another man's wife. Why would you want to do that? Right? And of course, the, the answer for a wise person would be, I don't. I have absolutely no reason to. I definitely should not. Of course, don't forget, though, in the book of Proverbs, you have the fool, you have the naive, you have the scoffer, and then you have the wise person, right? Wisdom personified, wisdom how to listen to the voice of instruction and then how to live out the instruction that you receive. And then when you do live it out in obedience before the world, it actually is a beautiful thing and an honoring thing. And it is a beneficial thing for you as you learn to live wisely. You come to the New Testament and what do you find the Lord saying? You find him saying things like this. You have heard, it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Right, the Lord being the Lord of the commandments, that any, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So see, the Lord is saying, listen, I want you to be pure in your thoughts, in what you think about other people and how you categorize those things in your mind the link between adultery and lust generally with 
in Scripture, it says that adultery is also true. What's said of adultery is also true of lust. They go, they're linked together. And then Paul again says to the Roman church, let us behave properly as in as it is in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual in promiscuity and sensuality. He's saying, listen, don't live like that as a believer. You used to do it before, but no longer because you know Christ. All right, and then he says this, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. So he's saying to to you and I, listen, in the flesh, that we, the body that we live in, there are certain passions and desires. There's certain lusts, and they're strong. Listen, put on Christ as clothing and understanding what he's done for you, and it's your responsibility not to make any provision for what your lusts are desiring. In other words, don't make provision for the f- flesh. Avoid those things that would cause your lust to be inflamed and your passions to be inflamed. And so the words no provision is any lust is impure. No matter how small or short-lived, anything is impure. So what are we to do with sexual impurity? Well, if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it says that we're to abstain from premarital sex at least here it says for this is the will of God your sanctification see God is God's will is the thing he that God wants and what God wants is what pleases him and that should be the thing that pleases us is what God wants so that means to please him we must know and do his will and what is the will of God for the Thessalonians and for us well the will of God is our sanctification all right that that means a life of holiness. Believers come to Christ with all their sin, and they receive the cleansing of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, which we sang about this morning. And then every day we wake up and we have a decision to make. Am I going to live a sanctified, holy life, or am I not? When we give ourselves over to the Spirit of God and our minds are being transformed by the word of God, then what happens is we become more and more what God would have us to be on that particular day. And that means to be set apart wholly to God and to be separated in the consecration of your life and conduct unto God because that's what you're offering up to the Lord on that particular day. You're offering up yourself. You're offering up your life. You're offering up your thoughts, your passions, your desires. You're giving yourself over to God. That's what you're doing. And that becomes a pleasing offering to the Lord, like Romans 12 says. We are a living sacrifice to God, right? I'm going out there as a sacrifice to God, living. So I'm a display before the world, and so are you. And especially in the use of your body and the use of your mind. So in verse number 3, it says, not only for this is the will of God, your sanctification, but look what it says. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. So we have from this passage of Scripture the whole concept of abstinence. All right, The verb is very strong here, and it means to keep free from something, to keep away from something. And of course, in this 
case, it's all forms of sexual immorality. Uh, Paul, again, said to the Ephesian church, but immorality or any, any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. But is that true of the church in general? It seems to me that the church and people who name the name of Christ are taking on the concepts of the world concerning marriage and sexual relationships and not the word of God's principles and concepts. And so therefore, we ought to be ready to give ourselves to the Lord so we begin to think the right way and act the right way. So abstinence really includes anything real or anything imagined concerning any sexual deviant behavior or thinking. So for human beings to attempt to gratify their sexual hunger in any other way than marriage is a deviation from God's plan and will. And that, that would include really any man-to-woman sexual relationship outside or before marriage. That would include any man-to-man -man or woman-to-woman -woman sexual gratification such as occurs in homosexuality. And let me say, even though some today would have us believe that homosexual activity is neither wrong nor immoral, but simply a different lifestyle, a different choice that someone makes, God's word declares it is sin, period. I just can't get away from that. Why? God makes the rules on the sexual relationship, right? God makes the rules concerning marriage. It also includes any other self-stimulated gratification that would occur in such things as masturbation. That masturbation is impure because it is an attempt to have pleasure outside of the marriage bond. It is a selfish rather than a loving act. It is the, grat the self-gratification of the flesh. It is a perversion of something God has made good. So, culturally, for the Thessalonians, pagan religions did not determine for anyone that there should be any sexual purity to its devotees. The gods and the goddesses were grossly immoral. And yet, you know what, in a way, uh, the goddesses and and the gods and goddesses of our culture are grossly immoral, right? The, the idols of our culture, the people that the young people want to emulate and be like, they are grossly immoral. That's where they get their desire to be like that. So see, we're, we're living in the same place, uh, a, a place of gross immorality all around us, all the time. They can't sell anything without sex. Well, let me say first that God designed you and me as a sexual being. He's placed a dynamic creative force within us. It should be reasonable, re reasonable from, from the word of God that the designer and the maker again would not leave you or I without directions regarding this powerful sexual machinery. 
that he's placed within us. But secondly, let me remind you that the designer has given us precautions from the word of God and has given us restrictions found right in the manual book called the Bible and that God is for you on this matter and not trying to make life miserable for you, but actually wonderful for you since God created man's sex hunger. God's plans for man and his sex hunger should be satisfied by the marriage institution, period. There's no way to get around that in Scripture. So we've, we've all been exposed to all kinds of different ideas and views concerning sex and love and marriage. Society has loudly and frequently said to us, everyone must make their own decision, their personal decision concerning sex. That's true. But according to whose agenda? Who will make the decision for you? Are you going to view your sex drive as simply another biological phenomena like hunger or thirst? Or something far more meaningful than that? Will you consider your sex urges as something to be satisfied now when you want it? When you decide? Or is it something to be diverted until later when God calls you to get married if that would be God's will for you see whose advice will you seek and follow in regard to sexual conduct who are you going who are you you're going to take somebody's advice that's for sure but whose advice are you going to take your parents well your parents could have messed that up and not passed it down correctly are you going to um, take the advice of the kids at school and what they're doing and what they're thinking? Are you going to take the advice of someone who lives down the block? Are you going to take your cues from actors and musicians and through the many media venues available to you today? Where are you going to get your advice to inform your heart about the decision concerning this very vital and important area of your life. I pray that your advice would come from your Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, the designer of marriage, and the one who knows all about how it works. So, first things Christians are to do is to hold themselves far away from fornication and adultery and the next thing they are to do is to know how to do the first thing and if you look at verse number four of first Thessalonians chapter four it says that it says that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor now, what it's saying here is know how to control yourself. Know how to control your passions and your desires. How do, how do you do it in a manner that is that of sanctification or holiness and that of honor? Well, 
We are, we are to know very well, according to the scripture, that we are to practice the habit of purity, because that's what it's talking about here. And then in verse 4, what does possess mean? It means, it, uh, it, it's the emphasis is, is, is this sense. It's, it's getting a handle on learning how to keep your own body under control so you will preserve and persevere in purity right up until the day you get married. So why do you restrain yourself and give your members over to the power of the Holy Spirit of God for living righteously? It's for this reason. And for this reason alone. You love the Lord. And you want to please Jesus Christ. And you want to keep in mind as you love the Lord and please Jesus Christ that God is a consuming fire. This must be the primary reason for abstaining from not only sexual immorality but any sin. I love the Lord. I know what he's done for me. I know the love he demonstrated for me on, the, on Calvary when I was ungodly and unholy and rebellious and an enemy of God, that's when he displayed his love toward me. And if God did that, and the greatest commandment in Scripture is to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and all your might, and, and your neighbor as yourself, if that's the first, and they can't be reversed, then that is the key to overcoming all sin, the love you have for the Lord. So it says here, know how to control yourself around all women and men of all ages of all times. In verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who don't know God, who don't know God. So back in verse 5, we see here, it's because of those who name Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. They know God. They now have an intimate relationship with the Father through the atoning death of Christ and are presently indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. And God is working purity in them. He's working purity in them. And what God is working in us, we are to work out. We are to work out purity in our thought life, in our daily relationships, in our activities. So it is God's will that every Christian is to know how to act in the matter of sex as is pleasing to God concerning other people around them. So that means Christians know very well that every type of fornication is contrary to God's will, that Christians know very well that passion alone or feelings alone is an inaccurate and often destructive guide to determining whether something is right or wrong in this area. In fact, in verse 5, it says, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. So the word passion means generally desire, longing. In fact, it can be translated lust. Commentary uh, Lenski said the word is used to picture a fire that one encourages and feeds. Thus the combination of of lustful passion means the evil passions of the heart are regularly fed by lustful fuel. 
That is, as long as you feed it, you keep the passion burning. But if you don't feed it, the evil passion dies. So Christians know very well that God, God's institution of marriage is honorable and the use of the sexual relationship is honorable in it alone. That Christians know very well that they are to set themselves apart to please God and live honor, honorably before people in pure relationships with other. And so it says there, we're to live in sanctification and honor with others. But he does mention something in here. That, but the pagans, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, in other words, before you're converted, they didn't know God. They did have a sense of the standard that God made in marriage because God already put that in his, their heart. But they didn't know God personally. If they did a sexual sin, it wasn't a sexual sin against God. They didn't know him. So because they don't know God, they run wild in all manner of sexual excess following the cues of the world, the lustful passions of their flesh, and satanic temptation and manipulation. So that's what pagans do. In other words, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that is not the way you do it anymore. You are not that person anymore. You know God. It changes everything when you know the Lord. Everything. So that, again, in every case, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, brings it down to this particular point. Look at verse number 6 of 1 Thessalonians 6 because here's the revenge. God's revenge in our terrifying motivation and what is that in verse number 6? And that no man transgress, transgress and defraud his brother in the, in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Here again, he brings in that, listen, God is the avenger of the wrong. And what is the wrong? It, the wrong is this, that no one can be involved with this kind of lifestyle without in some way sinning against or cheating his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That no man transgress, that sin against, or defraud, rob someone else of what? Of their purity. Right? Don't sin against your brother and sister. Don't do wrong against them. Don't sin against them. Don't go too far with them. Don't go beyond what is right with them. Don't cheat them. Don't take advantage of them. See, this all means that any and all acts of sexual looseness represents an act of injustice towards someone else. That all sexual looseness before marriage symbolizes the robbing of the other of that virginity which ought to be brought to the marriage, and of course that would be that of purity. So why shouldn't I defraud my brother or sister and sin against them by robbing them of their purity? Well, I shouldn't do it because in verse 6 it says, Remember that the Lord is the avenger of all wrongs. 
Because the Lord is the avenger, it says, in these things, just as I told you before and solemnly warned you that, see, the Christians, Christians are to avoid such conduct because God is the one who punishes. In other words, God will, make, will take action against people who sin like this. This is something Paul already solemnly warned them of, that contemporary men and women need to remember that God is the evangel of sexual wrongs, both in this life and the next. In fact, when you look at, again as, at the wisdom book of Proverbs, in chapter uh, 6, it tells us the one who commits adultery with a woman, a man who commits adultery with a woman, or vice versa, lacks sense. They're foolish. They haven't considered God's standard of things, and they just did what the flesh said to do. They just did what their passion said to do. They didn't do what God said to do. So the first reason to avoid any sexual misconduct appeals to the fear of the consequences of disobedience. In other words, this passage and others like it are meant to be a strong and forceful in, uh, in, uh, word against Right, it really intended to instill in the believer the sense of the seriousness of impurity and the fear of the Lord that will keep them from impurity. Both of those things are included, that a professing believer who continues in impurity without genuine repentance can neither have assurance of their salvation and should expect from Hebrews chapter 12 the discipline of the Lord. So if he or she is truly saved, or he or she is, does not want to heed the warning that God gives or any discipline that God would bring into their life and will not repent, can't really say that they're a believer. They may be, and God's discipline may come in and correct everything, and then they may come to repentance and then display genuine conversion as God rescues them from their sin as they confessed their wrong uh, behavior and confessed their impurity before the Lord, and anybody defraud, they defrauded in any relationship. So you and I are, are warned today from the Word of God not to take lightly a lackadaisical, don't have a lackadaisical attitude toward sexual conduct. Remember that a just God and a coming day of judgment are factors that cannot be left out of consideration when dealing with moral practices. And why is that? Well, because of verse 7. That's what I mentioned already. For God has not called you for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. In other words, God's called you for purity. God's called you to be a picture of purity. So it's, it's really looking back to what the Lord has done. He's called us to something. He's called us out of what the world does in this area to what God requires in this area, and that you are actually a picture of that to the rest of the world. In other words, our effectual call to trust in Jesus alone for salvation also means that we are called to a certain kind of living. That God had a definite purpose in mind concerning the way we should live our everyday life. That 
all immoralities must be avoided as being inconsistent with God's gracious call upon our life at salvation, that you cannot live as if you do not know God anymore. You cannot push this aside as if it doesn't mean anything. You can't redefine it. Put it in a different box. Christians have been called to a life of progressive holiness, period. We can't get away from that. And when we, we live that way, we reap the benefits of not only honoring God, but a living with a guilt-free conscience. Living a life that is pure, and if you are not married, up until the day you do get married, and then you begin to reap the benefits of marriage. And then if you took God's uh, instructions on before, then while you're in marriage, you know, you're going to do the same thing. You're going to say, wait a minute, God designed marriage. I'm going to get the blueprints. I'm going to look at Adam. What am I supposed to do? How am I, you know, what, what is a wife supposed to do? What's her role? What's a husband supposed to do? What's his role? And I'm going to look at it, and I'm going to institute it in my marriage. And if you are already married and you became a believer, then you're going to go back and you're going to look at the Word of God and say, you know, I've been doing that wrong, that wrong, that wrong, that wrong. As a matter of fact, I've been doing most of the stuff wrong. And I'm going to do, start doing it God's way. And you begin to implement step-by-step step God's procedure of what it means to have a fulfilled marriage. And then you begin to realize, wow, this is amazing. And you begin to experience the, the intention of the designer in marriage as you and your spouse stay pure in your relationship and honor God in all things. And you get closer and closer and closer to God and each other in a way that I can't define. So you learn not to sin against each other, not to abuse each other, not to defraud each other, not to put down each other, but to build each other up. And as you build each other up and you grow in the Lord, then God begins to use your life as an example and illustration of how God loves the church, how he loves his people. And not only that, in Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 8, there's an ultimate standard that it's God's spirit that is our ultimate standard, where it says, consequently, in verse 8, he who rejects this is not rejecting men, but the God who gives his spirit to you. In other words, a real believer doesn't do this on his own. He cannot overcome his passion in the realm of the sexual area on his own. He needs God's power to do it. He needs the Holy Spirit of God to do it. And a real believer has the Spirit of God. So anyone who treats sexual sin as no big deal actually is treating God and his word of no account. But here, we can't forget that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers saints in the struggle for holiness. Well, without going to the passage of Scripture in Corinthians chapter 6, where it tells us, listen, you're not your own, you're bought with a price right? That your body is God's when you become a believer. It's, it's always been God's, but it does say there, listen, when you bring sexual impurity into another relationship besides the marriage bed, 
the impurity misuses the body. In verse 13, sexual impurity brings Christ into our sin. Sexual impurity is sin against the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then sexual impurity misuses something that belongs to God and what belongs to God, our bodies. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where does God dwell? In you. In the church. That's where he dwells. So God, the Holy Spirit, lives within believers. And it is the the presence of the Holy Spirit that makes our body the temple of God. And by His indwelling, we're commanded to walk by the Spirit. And when we walk by the Spirit, we gain victory over the passions and desires of the flesh. When we yield to the Spirit, like Romans chapter 6 tells us, He creates a holy desire in us. And He empowers us to walk in holiness and not to be detoured into the lust of the world or the lust of the flesh or any of those things or to write off what God commands us as nothing, but we are to give ourselves to the Holy Spirit of God's control. And in doing so, we don't grieve Him and we don't quench Him but we give ourselves to him to be used by God. So, if you are to maintain a walk of purity, there may be some things that you may want to do or may not want to do. I think here are some of them. You must, in some sense, avoid persons that might lead you into temptation. In, In other words, you need to cut off companionship with persons who have been involved with you in wrongdoing. So a believer has no right to be with an unbeliever whatsoever. And then what you need to do is you need to find some good and wholesome relationships. I think another thing you need to avoid is situations that might lead you into temptation. Too much time of being alone is not a good thing. Uh, You must come to a place where you become active in some kind of activity that is wholesome. Hobby, study, ministry. You must avoid every book and magazine and TV program and movie and video and computer program or internet site that might prove sexually stimulating you have to avoid things you have to make no provision for the flesh you have to stop putting gasoline on the fire of passion instead read God's word read books that are saturated with Bible and theology memorize the scripture especially those portions that will provide you help in time of temptation, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, a great book, like Hebrews chapter 13, like Proverbs chapter 5 and chapter 2 and chapter 6. There's many places in Scripture that gives us the fuel to be able to avoid certain paths in this area and also maintain a regular prayer life be calling upon the Lord. When sudden 
temptation strikes, that's when you pray. And believe me, the Lord is there to help you and win the battle. You must also make yourself accountable to some mature man if you're a man or some mature woman if you're a woman in the congregation for this very purpose, for the purpose of purity. And then finally, fall in love with the Lord Jesus and live to please him. That's what you ought to do. Fall in love with the Lord. It is not impossible to break these habits. And if you have today fallen into any kind of wrongful practice, the Lord Jesus Christ stands ready to forgive you for past sins and to enable you to keep free from such sins in the future. He empowers us to do this by His Spirit. But you must be willing to do your part and to cast yourself on the mercy of God for deliverance. See, it doesn't mean that people do not have moral and ethical standards. They do. But when they do not acknowledge God's standards for morality, they are guided by their own degrading passions to make their own standards. So, when you're going out with someone of the opposite sex, stay active with others. Don't allow too much time with each other. Plan your time together so that it is filled with absorbing, wholesome activity. And then when it is over, you go home. Don't lower your inhibitions or dull your judgments when you're with other people. In the sense of drinking alcoholic beverages, you shouldn't be doing that anyway, or taking any kind of drugs, or people around you taking drugs, their inhibitions are going to be lowered, and their lusts are going to be raised, and therefore their, any passion, any desire for morality is going to be pushed aside, at least for the meantime, even if someone has a standard at all. See, God has given us higher faculties that give us the ability to judge correctly. He gives us a conscience. He gives us reason. He gives us self-control. We, wanna, we don't want to short-circuit any of those things uh, as if we don't care because of this other person. Depend on the Holy Spirit of God to keep you self-control. And don't get all tied up with sexual things in your mind. Divert your thoughts onto the interests and hobbies and other things that are of noble endeavor. Keep your mind on the right things. Like Paul said to the Philippians, listen, brethren, whatever is pure, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, let your mind dwell on these things. Your mind has to be dwelling on something. Don't let it be dwelling on filth. You know, as believers... You need to think of sexual sins that when you are thinking about them or you're feeding off them, that you're feeding off, you're feeding in the sore. You're feeding in a place where things are decaying and rotten and dead. You wouldn't really want to eat that kind of food. You wouldn't want to have your meals in a sore, by a sore, with the smell of a sore. You wouldn't want to do that. But when you think in this area you're really thinking and eating and feeding by a sore also we have to avoid 
self-defeating behavior. Well, Job said finally in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I, I, how then could I gaze upon a virgin? You have to be disciplined in that area. And then, of course, a great motivation in Scripture when it comes to this thing is flee sexual temptation. Run. Flight is usually the best approach. Get out. Get out. Stand and resist temptation is possible to a point, but it's much easier and makes much more sense to run from it. Get out of there. Where Paul said to the young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, now flee from youthful lusts. Flee from it. Run from it. But we can't just run from it. There's a second thing Paul tells Timothy. He says, listen, and then pursue righteousness. There's the pursuit. There's the energy. Pursue something that is right, a right behavior. If you're going to flee, then you must also pursue right thinking and right living. And this is what he says. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's what Paul said. And of course, resist temptation by relying on the strength of God's word, where in Psalm 119.11 it says, Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And then keep the line. Keep the line between the unmarried state and the married state drawn distinct and clear that chastity before marriage is what pleases God. Purity before marriage is what pleases God. And then ultimately and finally view marriage as something that is set apart, something that is sacred, something that is special, a right of grant, granted to you by God as a special privilege on this side of eternity if God is to grant that to you. So in all these things and more, the bottom line is that we are commanded in Scripture to use our bodies in an honoring way before the eyes of the Lord and before the eyes of the world. So may the Lord grant us the ability to do that. So marriage institution will always remain in our mind as an institution that is highly exalted and designed by God himself, given to us as a gift. And that once we have it, we would keep it. And that we would uh, nurture it. And that we would maintain it and that we would take seriously that the day that we say yes to our spouse, we would, meet, we would mean in our hearts, not until things go wrong, not until somebody gets sick and I can't handle it, but until death do you part. That would be in our hearts. And young people, in your heart, your desire would be to remain pure sexually, in your mind and in your heart and in your actions before God until the day you get married. 
I wish, I really do wish somebody preached this to me when I was a young person. No one ever did. And many of the cues that I took as a young person didn't come from came from my own standard of morality and your own standard of morality can morph depending on your situation. Well, I'll give that up today. And uh, I wish somebody would had told me, preached to me, said to me, pulled me aside and told me what really honors God. It sure does help. It really does. Let's pray. Lord, today I I do thank you for the scriptures. I know, Lord, that this was a point driven home many times over. But Lord, may we be in command of our bodies. May we have the strength to flee from temptation. Not only that we find happiness in this life and especially in you, but also that we might stand before you unashamed one day because our lives have honored the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Lord, if there's anyone today who is hurting in this area, who has experienced defeat and had no success in these areas, Lord, please... Speak to them, Lord. Let them come to you for help. Lord, maybe even for the salvation of their soul. And I pray, Lord, that this morning you may strengthen us who are married and that you may strengthen those who are yet single and are young people that they would desire more than anything else in their heart to please you. And Lord, anything in their life they need to change, they need to remove, I pray that today would be the day they do that. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them victory over their passions and lusts for this reason, that they know you and that you may sanctify them to live a pure life before you in love. And I ask you for this in the powerful and precious name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, and I pray this, amen.